if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to the middle. That'll probably be the book of Psalms. That's the longest book in the Bible. And then you can turn right at the Psalms and you'll get to the next book, which is Proverbs. And today we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 31. And what I want to do is take just a couple of seconds and explain to those of you that are non-Christians who just saw three quarters of all the women in the room roll their eyes. I want to take a couple of minutes and explain just why you're seeing ladies in the room get nervous and fidgety and elbow their husbands and check their cell phones and basically look for exits. Uh, the, the reason that you're seeing that is because the book of Proverbs in a lot of ways has been lost to the church. And in particular, Proverbs 31 has been lost to the church. And, and I don't mean it's been lost to the church because people don't teach on it because they do. Uh, they usually teach on it on Mother's Day. The reason it's been lost to the church is because it's been taught in a really unhelpful way, especially in this part of the world. And here's what I mean by that. The way that Proverbs 31 has been taught is usually through a lens of moralism. And moralism says this. It says, do, 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 and maybe God will accept you if you do enough. So well-meaning pastors stand up. They open up to Proverbs 31, which is this hero poem about this valorous, virtuous woman. And they talk about all the things that she does in this poem, that she rises while it's still night to prepare things for her family, that she doesn't fear winter because she's made garments of scarlet to close her kids in, that she's involved in real estate and buying fields and selling them, that she's overseeing the servants of their farm and she's cooking lavish feasts and she's also involved in high capacity decisions. And and pastors stand up on Mother's Day and they preach through that list and they basically say, do this and maybe just maybe you can stack up to be a good Christian. And it's like, thanks, I'm glad I brought my mom today so that you could shame her. Really helpful. And the young women, especially young moms in the room, they feel totally deflated by those sermons because it's like, hey, you know, not only is, not only is making garments of scarlet not the goal for the day, but I have a three-year-old and the goal for the day is just not going to the emergency room, right? It's like, like my win for the day, if I get to the end of this day and, and there's not poop on the walls, I'm gonna feel really good about myself and my mom's skills, Um, And the same thing happens with single ladies because this poem basically highlights the virtues of a married woman. And so single ladies feel like, well, do I have to get married? And in particular, do I have to get married and have kids for me to have a place in the kingdom of God? And so what I wanna do today is I wanna keep talking about Proverbs 31 until we as a church see it through the lens of grace because it's actually a really beautiful part of the Bible. And even though pastors have used it in the past to hit women with it, it's actually in the Bible to help you grow to see the grace of God in Jesus. See, moralism says, do, 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 or try, 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 and maybe just maybe you'll stack up to God's standards and you'll be accepted. Grace says, in the finished work of Jesus, it's done. His righteousness is the way that you stand and it's his cross that gives you forgiveness and it's his love that's yours in Jesus. And coming out of that grace, you actually have the power of the Holy Spirit to grow slowly throughout your lifetime to look more like Jesus. Ray Ortland Jr. wrote a fantastic book about the book of Proverbs and he says this, God does not intend to crush us with layer upon layer of demand. He intends to help us 
And the book of Proverbs is practical help from God for weak people. Count me in like us stumbling through daily life. It's his counsel for the, for the perplexed, his strength for the defeated, his warnings to the proud, his mercy for the broken. The book of Proverbs is the gospel. It's good news for the inept through the wisdom of another. He goes on to write, it's about grace for sinners. It's about hope for failures. It's about wisdom for idiots. This book is Jesus himself coming to us as our counselor, as our sage, as our life coach. See, I just don't think that we can take seven or eight weeks and talk about redeemed womanhood, redeemed femininity, and just avoid one of the most powerful parts of the whole Bible as it relates to womanhood, Proverbs 31. I don't think that we can let moralistic, graceless preaching in the Midwest make us afraid of something that actually is an invitation by God's grace to grow as women of valor that help push back darkness in the world, in your relationships, through your talents, strengths, and gifts. And so my hope today is not to take Proverbs 31 as a shaming stick and point it at you and make you feel bad and then send you out to lunch to be depressed about all the ways that you don't stack up. My hope is to say, thanks be to Jesus because of his life, his death and his resurrection, you don't have to do anything today to earn God's love and approval. You have it. You've been adopted if you're his. You've been accepted if you're his. And it's that realization, it's that grace that on your best day, he loves you. And on your worst day, he loves you. It's that realization that actually leads us to grow up, to get more mature, to use our gifts for the benefit of others. So this week, moms in particular, if you have a day where you just crush it, right? Like that day you wake up and you've got three-year-olds and you have a varsity level craft. And then after the craft, you have your Latin lesson. And after Latin, you do an organic grass-fed beef sandwich with organic apples and brie on the side. Like on that day, guess what? You didn't do anything to add to the love of God that's yours in Christ. And on the day where you totally blow it and, and like the best thing that you can claim for the day is that you didn't hit anybody, on that day, on that day, you don't diminish from the love of God in Christ. The same thing is true for our single ladies, for our empty nesters, for our ladies without children. Like you don't do stuff to get God to love you. You receive his love in Jesus and that helps you live a life of greater fruitfulness. Amen? So with that in mind, I'm gonna read this and we're gonna dive into it. It says, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he would have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and she holds the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household for all of her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. 
She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So what we're gonna do is over the next couple of minutes, we're just gonna pull out what's here and we're gonna see it through the lens of the truth of God's grace. Because here's what's happening in this story. What's happening in this story is not a woman who's doing things to earn God's favor. It's a woman who's been added to the family of God by the mercy and grace of God. And that mercy and grace over a lifetime is growing her to look more like Jesus in some really beautiful ways. So a few things we need to know about this poem. The first thing is, This poem is an acrostic in the Hebrew. Here's what I mean by that. If you take all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, it starts with the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet in the first verse, and it ends with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet in the last verse. And that's really important because it's the A to Z of redeemed womanhood that this author's telling us about. And the reason that that really matters is because no one woman at any time in her life is gonna be doing all of this. This is a composite sketch of mature, redeemed womanhood throughout a lifetime. This is so incredibly important because if you look at this as a sketch of all the things that you should be doing at any one moment, it's going to be crushing for your soul instead of realizing that this is a sketch of all of the different ways in which God's grace and mercy grew this woman throughout her lifetime to love and delight in God. That's the fear of God. And to see his will is the good life, not all the other offers of the world is the good life. This is really important. And the reason this is really important is because we as people are so terrible at being present in the season of life that we're in. Like, we're just terrible at it. If we're single, we dream of getting married. If we're married without kids, we're looking ahead to when we have kids. If we have young kids, we're dreaming of the day when they leave the house. And what happens is we miss out on the fact that God's grace and mercy is not something that comes later in life. God's grace and mercy is for you in every stage of life. I have a major regret in the lack of presence that me and Nancy both had when our kids were little. We had these two beautiful kids that were a gift from God and it was kind of okay at first and then they hit three. And I don't know if you know this about three-year-olds, but three-year-olds are horrible people. They're... They're terrible people. They're terrible people. Uh, People talk about two-year-olds and the terrible twos. Three-year-olds are so much worse than two-year-olds. So much worse because they do all of the disgusting and evil things that two-year-olds do and they have the verbal skills to tell you what they think about you, right? (laughs) And the whole time that our kids were in that stage of life, like we were just dreaming of the day that we could just drop them off at school and get a break from them. And what happened is we, we dreamed of a later day. And now here's what's crazy. My baby girl, my baby girl is almost 16 years old. I get maybe two more summers with her before she moves out of my house. And I missed out, I missed out on being fully present and realizing that God in his mercy, he gives kids as a gift. He gives singleness as a gift. 
He gives marriage as a gift. He gives old age as a gift. And all of those seasons of life are different and distinct and beautiful and valuable. And Jesus wants to redeem all of them. So this lady is not doing all this all at once, man. When when she had little kids, she's not probably in the midst of entrepreneurial deals to buy whole fields. Like she probably didn't have time to manage that. But throughout a lifetime, here's what you see. These are all different ways in which God gives you permission to be present in your stage of life. Can I just say, um, here's what's crazy. In the Bible, because of God's grace, if you're single, that's not a season in life to look at your life as like you're circling the runway, waiting to get called in from the tower to land, get married and start your life. In fact, what Paul does is if anything, he holds up singleness as to be more valued in the church than marriage. Singleness is a time in life where you get to use your gifts in unique ways and you get to explore the talents that God's put inside of you and you get to figure out who you are and you get to max out on pushing back darkness in the world and living in community. And Paul would say, don't waste your singleness. It's a divine calling, whether it's for a season or a lifetime, it's beautiful. When you have little kids, that's the grace of God. And I'm kidding about them being horrible people, but I'm also not. And and I'm saying that even though they do horrible things and they're so frustrating, so frustrating, they're also gifts of God that have been entrusted to you. And we're not to rush through the seasons of life. We're to be present with God. This is why Bruce Waltke, who wrote a great commentary on Proverbs, he says this, this valiant wife has been canonized as a role model for Israel for all time. Wise daughters, those are single women, wise daughters aspire to be like her. Wise men seek to marry her. And all wise people aim to incarnate the wisdom she embodies, each in his own sphere of activity. So can I just say, hey, ladies, like you're not being graded by God in comparison to other women. You're just not. You're not. The grace of God is so lovely in that Your value, dignity, and worth is determined on two things that can't be shaken by your performance. It's determined by the fact that you're an image bearer of God. And if you're a Christian, you're an adopted daughter of God. And that means whatever stage of life that you're in, you can actually hold it with open hands and you can embrace it as a divine calling from the living God. So that's the first thing. This is the A to Z of womanhood. This is not have everything right now all at once. Whatever season of life that you're in, Jesus is there. Jesus is there. And even if it's a really painful season of life, he's there in the pain and he wants to meet you and form you and lead you. Secondly, not only is this an acrostic, an A to Z of womanhood, um, this is so important. This is an epic hero poem. It's an epic hero poem. And we miss that when we read it in our translation, but the word that's used as excellent in our English translation would be better translated as valiant from the Hebrew. And that term valiant, that's a, that's a military term. That's a term that has to do with exploits on the battlefield. And throughout the Old Testament, there are these moments where warriors were celebrated, usually after their death, they were celebrated in poems that honored their valor in battle. So Saul, who was the king of Israel, he gets killed. His son, Jonathan, gets killed. And David writes this epic hero poem about their exploits and the way in which their heroism led to the deliverance of Israel. Well, here's what's so cool about this. In this poem right here, what the author's doing is he's holding up redeemed feminine strength 
as heroic in the same way as martial exploits on the battlefield are heroic. And I think that this is so important for us to camp out here because what happens in our culture, the more, the more we have tried to make both sexes the same in our definition of equality, instead of recognizing that what equality really is between men and women is equal value, dignity, worth, image bearers of God, co-heirs of the gospel, what we've said is equality means that they have to be the same instead of equal but unique and different. And what's happening in this cultural moment, the the more we're making male and female interchangeable, the more and more it's difficult to find hero stories for ladies in culture that are are actually realistic. So think of most hero stories in our culture for women. It's usually the same script or the same profile as almost every male hero story. And it usually is a movie about a lady that's really tough with martial arts, really good with a gun, or can kick people's butt with a lightsaber. And, and I don't want you to get me wrong. Like, I'm not saying that there aren't ladies that can do that. Uh, there, there's some ladies in our church, my money's on you if you get into a physical confrontation with a lot of the guys in our church. Um, I, I remember a terrifying moment in my life that forever scarred me where I was training for an MMA fight and I went to a jujitsu gym and you have to roll with everybody in the training. And I got to roll with this female black belt and it was a complete shaming. Uh, she destroyed me. She mocked me. I felt awkward. I was sweating on her. She didn't like that. And, and I'm thinking like, like, there's really no win here because if I tap her out, that's like bullying. And, and if she taps me out, I'm going to get mocked by the other guys. And the reality is she's just better than me. She just had skills. She was good at it. So there are ladies that can do those kind of things. But here's the reality. Ladies, on average, have 80% less upper body strength than guys. So can we just recognize that the hero narratives of our culture that say, hey, to be a hero means it's the same things that have traditionally and stereotypically been ascribed to men. Can we just recognize that we need a more robust view of just how powerful and beautiful womanhood is? And that's what this author's doing. He's talking about in the different spheres of her life, the way in which her feminine strength is brought to bear to bring life to her family, to her community, and to her world. The first week we talked about feminine strength, we we went to Genesis and we talked about God's creation of Eve. And we talked about how she's described as a helpmate or a helpmeet. And we talked about how that sounds so boring and lame and second class. And then we looked at the fact that that term helpmeet is used to describe God throughout the Old Testament. It's a way in which someone brings strength to somebody in need to bring life and rescuing. And what's happening here is we're seeing this woman flesh out in her womanhood the ways in which the community that she's in and the family that she's a part of desperately need the feminine life and the feminine strength that she can bring. Um, This last week, we had an awesome fall break camping trip with my family and Justin and Courtney Coffey's family. He's a, another pastor in our downtown congregation. We just had a blast. Uh, we went to Big Bend National Park, which is just fantastic. It's desert and mountains and black bear and elks and just crazy wildlife. And, and we camped together for a week in the middle of the desert. And the thing that was really interesting was just being around two generations of ladies So it was Nancy and Courtney, my daughter, Olivia, and Courtney's daughters. And what was breathtaking about our time in the desert was 
the way in which those ladies took a gross little patch of ground and they made it a place of gospel hospitality and fellowship and life for all of us. Like we, we could have gone camping, just me and Justin, and it wouldn't have been that kind of communal experience of beauty and grace because we lack the feminine strength that those ladies brought to the table in the way that they welcomed their families and their kids and their daughters. And even in the way the daughters, like they brought so much life and beauty to the conversations and energy and perspective. And what this guy is doing, he's just saying, hey, masculinity and femininity, they're not interchangeable. They're different, they're distinct, but there's valor, there's heroism in redeemed masculinity and there's valor and heroism in redeemed femininity and we need both. This poem celebrates her feminine strength. And and I'll say this, it's against the grain today and it was against the grain when it was written. Right? This poem was written in a period of time where ancient writers, when they wrote about women in poetry, they just celebrated the erotic. Right? If you go back to this time period and you read most stories or literature or poems about women, it's usually just skin deep. It's, it's that women's value is tied to the pleasure that they can bring through their physical bodies. Later on in Greek culture, most Greek poems about women just celebrated the domestic elements of what it is to be a woman. And what's so breathtaking about this poem is it, it neither does, it neither does um, a skin-deep, misogynistic, glancing overview of physical appearance in women, nor does it just reduce women to the domestic. What it does is it paints a sketch of a woman throughout a whole lifetime that by the grace of God is actually bringing life and beauty into both culture and the home. And it's against the grain. It's different and it's beautiful. So with that in mind, I want to show you two big things, two big things. And then I want to end this today by briefly talking to married men, single men, married women, and single women. So two things. First thing, I want you to see that in this text, this lady is described as better than gold or jewels. She's more valuable than gold or jewels. Look at verse 10. An excellent wife who can find... She is far more precious than jewels. Here's what happens throughout the book of Proverbs. The writer of Proverbs again and again and again is going to describe a woman who fears God. And that's another way to say a woman who's been rescued by grace. A woman who wants God's will in her life is one that sees that his will is better and glorious and good. That the good life is knowing and walking with Jesus. And what happens throughout this whole book, whenever he talks about a woman who fears God, he describes her as the crown of her husband. Or he talks about whoever finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Or he says a prudent wife is from the Lord. And then he wraps up this whole book about wisdom, responding to God's grace in a life that lines up with the true good life of following and obeying God. He ends this whole book with this woman who is this composite sketch of the embodiment of all that wisdom. Here's why this is so incredible. What he's saying is the value and dignity that you have as a lady, as both an image bearer of God, and then if you're a follower of Jesus, as a redeemed, adopted daughter of God, means that you have more value and worth than all the mineral deposits on planet Earth more than all the oil, more than all the gold, more than all the treasure. 
What this means is the ladies in our church desperately need, desperately need an experience of God's grace in which you see that your value and dignity as a human and your value and dignity as an adopted daughter is the reason why, is the reason why you can rest and start to figure out all of the relationships and roles in a way that glorifies Jesus. This is so crazy. Verse 11 says, the heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So here's what I would say. Ladies, on your best day, on your best day, you're not adding to the love of God in Christ for you. And on your worst day, you're not diminishing the love of God in Christ for you. What I want you to see desperately in the depths of your soul is that based on creation and based on grace, you can breathe and start to navigate your life in a way that's not driven to compete and to compare. I want you to just be able to breathe in and say, okay, you know what? Before I do anything, I'm an image bearer of God and I'm a daughter of the living God through the work of Jesus on the cross. And that means I can navigate all these other things and I can actually have room to fail and to not always kill it. You are loved, you are accepted. And this means something profound to the men in our church. What would it look like in our gospel witness to the cities in which our frontline congregations are planted? What would it look like to our gospel witness if we really as a church had a group of men that saw women through the lens of their value and dignity before the living God. Like just play that out in your mind for just a second. I love the 405 center. I love what we do to serve the poor. I love planning churches, but I'm just wanting you to imagine with me for a second, what would happen in Oklahoma City, Edmond, Shawnee, South OKC? What would happen if a group of men started believing the word of the gospel that women as image bearers and women as adopted daughters have more value and dignity than all the gold that's in the ground of planet earth. What would happen? Well, I think things would radically shift in the way that we talk about women and treat women and love women and honor women. And I think what would start to happen is the world in which we live would look into the church and see the ethics of our care for one another and actually start to ask about Jesus. This is what we want. She is golden because of her wisdom and strength that begin and end in the fear of God. Secondly, I want you to see that not only does she have this enormous value based on her creation and based on the grace of God, I want you to see that she uses her gifts for others. She uses her gifts for others. Look at this again, verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all of her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself and her clothing is fine linen. It goes on and talks about her relationship with her husband, 
and her not eating the bread of idleness and her children and her husband rising up and calling her blessed. Here's the big idea. When the grace of God captures you, that grace of God, far from leading to a less productive life, starts to empower you to grow more to be like Jesus in using your mind and your strength and your talents and your spiritual gifts to pursue true greatness. And in our culture, true greatness, like it's been in every culture without the gospel, true greatness has always been defined by how many people serve you. Where are you at on the org chart? How important are you? How many fans do you have? Who washes your feet? And Jesus shows up and he just flips everything on its head. He brings this kingdom that's so crazy in that though he's God, he humbles himself, takes on flesh to be a servant of mankind. He lives a humble life. He washes the feet of his disciples. His disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, the greatest among you is the one that serves. And then he reminds them that he came not to be served, but to serve. And what happens when grace really grabs you, when you start to see, okay, wait a second. What I deserve from God was wrath and rejection and abandonment. And what I got from God was that he pursued me and rescued me through Jesus coming to be the servant that washes feet and ultimately washes his bride with his own blood. True greatness starts to shift and we start to realize that, oh, like we're on this planet to not be served, but to worship and honor God by giving our lives away. What this lady does in these different stages of her life is she gives her life away with her talent and her gifts and her brain and her strength, her body. And in all the different spheres of her life, we see her being a servant of others. This is in the domestic. She's serving her family. She's loving her family. She's embracing the beautiful life-giving role that she has in her family. It's in the economic Like this lady is incredibly entrepreneurial. She's making money and she's not making money just so that she can have more and more consumption. She's making more and more money so that she can bless her family and bless her community and advance the mission of God to love and care for the poor and the needy. We see it in her missional relationships. She's discipling other ladies. She's caring for the needs of the poor. We see it that she's actually opening her mouth and teaching the truth of God's wisdom to the people around her. This is such a beautiful snapshot of what it means to be rescued by grace. It's like, do you have to do any of this stuff to get God to love you? No, that's the crazy scandal of the gospel. Before you did anything, before you did anything good, when you were incapable of pleasing God, when your best deeds, your best deeds were always mixed up with selfishness and blindness to God, what did God do? He came for you. And he rescued you in a really crazy, dramatic, painful way. Jesus was crushed for you. And he pursued you and he poured out his grace on you. And here's what happens. The more that grace starts to grab you, the more you're like, okay, I want my life to count, not to get God to love me, but because he loves me so much. I want my talents and my gifts to be used for his glory. Here's what's crazy. You ladies in our church have 
enough deposits of God's grace that have given you talents when you were born and gifts and experiences. You've been given so many things that we could literally see Oklahoma City turn upside down by an army of ladies who are giving their lives away because of the gospel. And my hope and my prayer is that the men of our church and the women of our church start to get more arrested by grace because grace leads you to want to lay down your life for the blessing of others. So what matters? What's beautiful? What's the good life? That's the question, right? The good life is being rescued by God so that you can fear him. And, and there's a pinch of the fear of God where it's like, he's just so holy. He's just so other. There's like a healthy, just, yeah, you're, you're terrifying. If I came to you in my sin, based on my good deeds, my sinful face would melt off. It would be like, it would be like Raiders of the Lost Ark. It would be bad for me, bad for me. But because of Jesus, I can come to you. Listen, because of Jesus, I can come to you. And what I get is your acceptance. The fear of God isn't just terror that God's gonna strike you. The fear of God is, I want your will. If you love me so much to give me Jesus, I want everything that you want. I wanna trust you. And even when times are hard, I wanna define the good life as a life of walking with Jesus. And that's a life of giving your life away. So in closing, here's what I wanna do. Real fast, I wanna talk to married brothers. I wanna talk to single brothers quickly. I wanna talk to married ladies. I wanna talk to single ladies. Married men, I would say a couple of things to you. First of all, the scripture is exceedingly clear in the New Testament that marriage is a mystery that points to Jesus in the church. This is Ephesians. And, And here's what this means. It means whether you abdicate this role or not, God has called you if you're married to provide sacrificial, what the Bible calls headship for your family. Now I get, we say that word headship and everybody's like, oh crap, here we go. And the reason we do that is because what we've seen leadership as in the world is the Gentiles trying to lord it over each other. But fellas, here's what I would say. To be a husband or to be a daddy is to actually receive the calling from God to lay down your life like Jesus for the blessing and benefit of your wife and your family. Headship is is growing to be more like Jesus in wanting to empower and serve your wife. And, And here's how I see this in this text. How did this lady's kids learn to call her blessed? Like we see that in this story, right? Her kids rise and call her blessed. Does anybody have a 12 year old that rises and calls you blessed? You know, like that, when your kid's three, they're not rising and calling you blessed. They're using all kinds of other terms to describe you. How do her kids, how do her kids grow to finally be able to call her blessed? Well, they've seen dad doing it. He praises her. He, he's calling out of her the deposits of talent and gifting and grace that God's put there. He's naming them. He's encouraging her. He's nurturing. Here's what I would say. Headship in the home is not either passively just sitting back nor is it oppressively trying to control your wife. Headship in the home is laying down your life by God's grace for her so that she can thrive and flourish and be everything Jesus has called her to be. Your job is to be her fan. Your job is to be her friend. Your job is to pray for her like crazy. And by God's grace, what your goal should be is that she's more radiant on the last day of her life than she was the day that she stood in front of you and said, I do. So if you're a married man, if you're a married man, it's our job to prayerfully, 
prayerfully and humbly and gently recognize that our wives are treasures. Recognize that next to salvation, the greatest gift you've ever been given is your wife and to love her and serve her in such a way that you're removing roadblocks to her walking out her calling and destiny. To single men. Now, to single men, I want to say in in a fatherly tone, like I'm tempted to go um, Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, and smash a guitar to get your attention. I'm not going to do that. I want to speak fatherly to the single men in our church. Here's what I would say. The scripture says right here, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Elsewhere in Proverbs, it says, a woman, a beautiful woman who lacks discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's nose. So here's what I would say. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're a single man, your definition of beauty needs to be redeemed to line up with God's definition of beauty. And God's definition of beauty is not the cultural moment that we live in that's based on physical appearance. God's definition of beauty is a woman that fears God and wants his will. Therefore, as young men, as single men, the scripture calls us to treat older women with dignity and respect like mothers and to treat younger women with dignity and respect like sisters in all purity. And and I think for our single guys, I would just say, some of you guys, some of you guys are doing all right with this. Some of you guys are exceedingly frustrating because you walk right past women who fear the Lord to go after the gold ring in the pig's nose. And I'll just say, man, like I get, do the best you can with your body, physical fitness. We're in this culture where wheatgrass is cool. Drink all the wheatgrass you want. Here's here's what's going to happen. Gravity is still going to affect you. Okay? Still going to affect you, man. And and I don't want to be a downer right before lunchtime, but guess what? Right now in this moment, your body is slowly dying. True story, man. True story. You might slow that joint down a little bit with all the yoga that you're doing and spin class, but yoga or a diet of bacon at the end of the day, gravity's going to get you, you're going to get old, and you're going to eventually die. And here's what's crazy. External beauty and internal ugliness gets more and more horrific over time. Internal beauty with external maybe plainness gets more and more radiant over time. And I just would say, there are so many amazing, like if you're a single guy and you desire to be married and you can't find a woman in this church to marry, you are an idiot. (laughs) With all love and respect, man. And and I would just say, I hear this all the time. Well, you know, I'm just not compatible. Here's what you need to know about compatibility. If you marry a woman, you won't be compatible with her because you're a man and she's a woman. (laughs) True story. It took me the first 10 years of our marriage to realize that 90% of our conflict was because I wanted to be married to a man. <laughs> true, true. I wanted her to look like a woman, but I wanted her to think like a man, communicate like a man, recreate like a man, act like a man, play like a man, joke like a man. And about 10 years in, I was like, oh, okay, here's the problem. Like, I want her to be a dude instead of a woman. We've been married almost 20 years. I just want to say, I'm so not compatible with Nancy. She's a woman. She's different than me. She's other. That's also what's fascinating about her. It's what draws me to her. There's otherness there. I would just say to the single guys, call beauty what God calls beauty. And don't walk past, don't walk past 
all the ladies in our church that are growing in internal beauty because the world tells you this is the list of what really matters. That's foolish. It's foolish. It's a trap and a snare. So to the married men, I'd say that. To the single men, I'd say that. To the single ladies, I would say this. Single women, like, don't think that what's radiant about this lady is all external. It's not that she's married and doing this role and she's killing it at work and she's killing it at home and she's juggling everything and that's why she's beautiful. Know this, single ladies. What's radiant about this lady is an inside out kind of beauty that comes from knowing who she is based on the grace of God. And what's incredible about that is that there's not a point where you tap into that once you get married or if you get married or once you have kids or if you get kids. What's radiant about this lady is the fear of God that she has leads to being a life giver that's laying down her life for others. And I just would plead with you, if you're a single lady, singleness is a holy calling. It's a holy calling. And I know some of you are like, it's not a calling I prayed for. I get that. I get that. But singleness is a holy calling and you can't wait to give your life away until you get married or if you get married. Your talents and your gifts and your passions, like you're called to use that stuff today for the glory of God and the advancement of his mission and to not just keep circling the runway. The tragic thing is so many ladies think that this kind of beautiful life of living, um, living out your talents and your gifts and your passions, like they think that that's something that's gonna just kick in instantly in a moment and they miss out on the fact that actually it's a lifelong process of drinking in God's grace, breathing in his grace, and breathing out a life of worship and service to other people. Don't waste it. To the married ladies, I would say, um, whenever we, we preach to men in our church, which we do a couple times a year, we, we, whenever we preach to men, I get a lot of ladies that come up afterwards and are like, we're not as direct with the ladies. So let me be as direct as I can to the married ladies. A couple things I want to point out. You're called to be a blessing to your husband, not a curse to your husband. And Proverbs has some, really, has some really pointed things to say, and I'll read them to you. Proverbs 21.9 says, It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. What is he saying here? Well, modern vernacular, better to live in the attic with the brown recluses <laughs> than share a bedroom with a wife who's constantly contentious, only sees the faults of her husband, is not grateful for any of the graces of God that he brings into her life and can only criticize and uncover and even nag and embarrass her husband in front of public groups. You're called to be a life giver. You're called to pray for him, to love him, to be a treasure in his life. Proverbs 27, 15 says, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. It seems like, oh, that doesn't really sound that bad. This is against the Geneva Convention. It's a form of torture. (laughs) True, true story. You can't do that to people in civilized countries. Water torture, continual dripping. Just go ahead and kill me right now. Scripture talks about better, better to live in the desert with a wife who's constantly contentious and quarrelsome. So what am I saying? I'm just saying, hey, um, by God's grace, by God's grace, if you're a man, there's a lot that we need to repent for in our relationship with women, whether you're married or single. 
by God's grace, if you're a woman, there's a lot that we need to repent of in our relationships with men, whether you're married or single. And by God's grace, here's what's awesome. By God's grace, men are supposed to be a blessing and benefit to ladies and ladies are called to be a blessing and benefit to men. That's God's dream. It's God's plan. And it's only possible through the gospel because we are so different and we're so sinful without the help of Jesus. We cannot do this.